Anybody ever hear of Harry Ironside? Famous preacher, famous preacher in the 20th century, preacher at the Moody Church for about 18 years and became a, an author. He wrote uh, uh, many books, uh, books. He wrote a, a commentary on each book of the Bible. In fact, our library has the complete set if you ever want to look at it. But he was so famous that um, he began to struggle with pride. He had a huge church, a huge following, and, and uh, just getting all kinds of acclaim. And he started to struggle with pride. And so he talked to one of his mentors about it. And his mentor said, well, I think the way to fix that is to put a sandwich board on that gives the gospel message and spend the entire day walking around Chicago. And that's just what he did. And the longer he walked, the more humiliated he got. How embarrassing to be walking through Chicago with, with this on. And he walked and walked. And by the time he got back home, he was so humiliated, so absolutely embarrassed by the experience. He thought, surely my pride is gone. And he took off the sandwich board. And then he thought, I bet I'm the only one who's ever done that. Ah, humility, humility, wow, what, what a tough thing. Don't we all struggle with that? The problem with humility is that when you know you have it, you don't, right? You know, and, and, and we, we've all heard, you know, of course, that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And that's a, that's a really good way to remember it. Today is all about being humble. Today's lesson out of Philippians 2. To live humbly. I really struggled with the title of this because the passage is really about unity. So I thought, well, maybe I should name it "Live in Live United" or "Live in in Humility in in Unity." But the way that that the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is going to teach us to get unity is through individual humility. So we're going to work toward unity by being humble. And then he says, the way to get that is to have the same attitude as Christ. So I thought maybe I should name this live with an attitude, the attitude of Christ. But we'll settle with live humbly and what a passage. It's just such a privilege to be able to speak this passage to you today. And you know, uh, many months ago, the passage that we were looking at uh, was about giving. And I said, it was so easy to talk to this church about that because you're all so generous. You give so generously every week. And so it was easy to do that. And, and to some extent, I feel the same way about unity. We're not a church that has struggled recently with unity. And so it's very easy to talk to you about unity. But the church at Philippi was kind of in the same boat. They were really doing well. Paul had hardly anything to correct them on, and yet the Holy Spirit directed him to give him this instruction about humility so that they could become more united. And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, so we're, we'll start with looking at how this is structured, and I'll, I'll just tell you right away that, that we'll have this on the slides, but in your bulletin, there's also the outline for the, for the message today, the outline of this passage, and you can follow along there if you would like. So we're going to begin first by praying that the Lord would open our eyes to this passage, and then by, uh, by stepping through it together. So pray with me. Lord, we need you to speak to us. This was a letter that was written to a church 2,000 years ago, 
and yet your Holy Spirit has it specifically for us today. As we consider the, the truth that is spoken, the necessity of what is spoken, and the, the, the depth of teaching that comes from your word today about you, Lord, we realize how desperate we are for your word. So feed us today, fill us, give to us all that we need and help us as we seek to have the same attitude that you had. In Jesus' name, amen. So the thought of this passage progresses through three sections. First, the four motivations for unity. So we look at why we should, be, why we should keep working at unity. The second, found in verse two, is the four qualities of unity. In other words, what unity actually looks like. And then the fourth section, which is verses three through 11, the humble actions of unity or practical steps toward unity. So we'll, we'll look at all of that together. Paul really begins by saying, church, I want you to know how good it is to belong to a church. You have things in a church that nobody else has, and these are the good things. So he's saying that the first things we're gonna look at in verse one is the, the great motivation to keep us working at becoming united. So verse one looks like this. It says there are four motivations for unity because we have in a church encouragement in Christ, we have the consolation of love, we have the fellowship of the spirit, and we have affection and compassion. The Holy Spirit is saying, we have a special bond with one another. Because of what Christ did on the cross for us, and because we by faith believe that he paid the penalty for our sins, he has brought a beautiful unity to church. And when you are saved, you're saved in a very individual and specific way. God does all kinds of unique things to bring us to himself. But then when we're saved, we're saved to the church, the global church, the body of Christ throughout the world. And specifically, we're saved to the local expression of that, the local experience of the church, which is faith community church for you. So if you're here today, it's because you're a part of the local expression of the body of Christ and you were saved for the purpose of being here. So what he's saying is that being here is so good that we just need to be reminded about why it's so good. And so, so he says the first thing is that at a church, we experience encouragement in Christ. You're not gonna get that anywhere else. You cannot be encouraged in Christ anywhere other than in the body of Christ. He says you receive the consoling love of Christ and we, we get that from one another as we console one another and share our love with one another. We are sharing the consoling love of Christ. Because of what Christ did for us and gave us his Holy Spirit, we share in the fellowship of the Spirit. Together, you and I share in the fellowship of the Spirit together. And then because we belong to a church, we have mutual affection and mutual compassion on one another. Now, we have to be honest, we don't get that perfectly at church, do we? Right, I mean, we're human, and we don't do this well all the time. So sometimes we fail one another in this, but the point is, you're not gonna find it anywhere else at all. 
right? You're not going to find it at a football game. You're not going to find it in a bar. You're not going to find it at the ladies' lunch. You're not going to find it at the water cooler at work. You can only find these things when you belong to a body of Christ, when you belong to a local church. Again, it's not perfect, but this is the only place you can get it. And so this is motivation for us to continue in unity because these things that we experience here are very precious, very special, and very beautiful. We can only get them here at church. So the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us what unity looks like. He says there are four qualities to unity. This is what unity actually looks like. Having the same mind, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit and intent on one purpose. So I want to bring out a couple of things. Having the same mind is mental unity, intellectual unity. The same love is emotional unity. Being united in spirit is spiritual unity. And intent on one purpose is directional unity. He says, this is what unity should look like in the church. And we know what that direction is. We, we know it because, because he gave it to us in chapter one. Before I say that, though, I, I just want to say that what this is saying is that or what it's not saying is that we should all look alike or dress alike or think alike or smell alike. That would be uniformity, and that comes from legalism. But what we're called to is unity, having the same purpose. And chapter one is where we found out what that purpose was. Do you remember it? It said that the important thing is that in every way, Christ is preached. That's number one purpose. And so if in every way Christ is preached, then in so doing, we live for the purpose of each other's progress and joy. And in doing that, we live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Can you believe it? We can live worthy of the gospel. Now, none of us is worthy of salvation, but we, are, we can live life worthy of the gospel when we together as a unit are striving for Christ being preached, number one, and then encouraging one another in each other's progress in Christ. That's what we're working toward. So next, then, we are given the, the, the ways to enhance our unity. So four humble actions of unity. First, do nothing out of selfish, selfishness or empty conceit. Second, with humility of, me, of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Third, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then fourth, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is obvious, right? We don't have to be too smart to understand this. If I act out of selfishness, or if I'm looking to promote my own glory, which is really what vain conceit is talking about, promoting my own glory, that is not going to enhance unity in this group of people. Or if I am seeking my own personal goals and disregarding your personal goals, that's not going to contribute to the unity of this group. But on the other hand, if I humbly consider your desires as greater than mine and more important than mine, then that will contribute to the unity of this group. So those things just make sense. And he ends that with this, have the same attitude that was in Christ. Can you imagine what that's like? Having the same 
attitude that is in Christ. Well, what we find in Christ is that he is the greatest example of humility. And if we are to have that example, follow that example, we will have a beautiful unity here in this church. So the greatest example of humility is seen in Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, although he existed in the form of God, I wanna just bring you to the Greek for a little bit here today. I, I think it would be better translated, although being in the form of God. You see, see the word being is really important here in the Greek because it's in what we call a, a present progressive tense, which means that he always was God. He is God currently, and he always will be being God. It's a progressive thing. We could read this, although he was existing in the form of God, or although he exists in the form of God. And the other important word is the word form, because in the Greek, that word form is talking about a specific form that has a permanent essence to it, all right? So it's not like, like I can be in the form of, you know, well, I don't know, think of Halloween maybe. I, I can be in the form of whatever costume I'm wearing, right? It's not that kind of a word. The word form is talking about something that is on the inside and working itself outside, that the outside is consistent with what is inside, that Jesus is intrinsically God, internally God. That's what this is talking about, although he existed in the form of God. So um, uh, we, we get this, what we understand is that from the Bible throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we are taught that Jesus is God. In Isaiah, Jesus is called wonderful counselor, mighty God. In Colossians, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that word firstborn over all creation just means the highest position over all creation. Jesus himself prayed this. He said, Lord, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus himself acknowledges that he has always been God and always will be. He is God, equal to God, one in purpose, one in spirit, one in love. And the complete unity that God and Jesus have together and the spirit is a picture of the complete unity that we are to have in the church. This is to picture who God is. And Jesus even prayed this in John 17. He said, I pray that all of them, talking about us, may be one, Father, just as you and I are one. Just as I am in you and you are in me. You see, what we experience here is supposed to be the very picture of the Trinity, of the unity that God had with Christ. So Jesus is God. He is the greatest example of humility, and the greatest example of humility is seen in Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus didn't use his position and his power and the privileges that he had as God for his own benefit and his own gain. Instead, he realized that all of those things that he had, 
that he could give it away for the benefit of others. He didn't grasp, he didn't cling, or he didn't, didn't uh, just strive to hold on to those things. Instead, he open-handedly gave them so that others would benefit. Now, when I think about grasping for, for God, first I think about Satan. You know, Satan is the originator of selfish ambition and vain glory. Right? He, he's the one who originated that. You see, he set out, the Bible says, to ascend above the heights of the clouds and make himself like the Most High. Satan was on a mission to dethrone God and become God himself. When I think of grasping for God in in the negative way, I think of Adam and Eve. Remember their temptation. When Satan tempted them, he said, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You see, the the whole point of that temptation was that they were striving to not have God where God was, but to to put themselves in God's place, to be their own gods, their own rulers. That's what they were about. And when they disobeyed, they fell from the position of being rulers over the earth. Adam and Eve lost that privilege of being rulers over the earth. Then we come to Jesus who actually is God, and said, I will not cling to my position. I will not cling to my power. I will not cling to my privileges and use them for my own advantage. Instead, I will give these up so that others may benefit from them. And we are the others. We are the others. Jesus set aside all of that so that you and I can have the benefits of him being God. There's a great irony here because because when we follow Christ, we become like God, right? That's what sanctification is all about. When we go through life, we're going through life, we're becoming more and more and more like God. That's That's what we do. That's what following Christ is all about. Satan and Adam said they wanted to be like God, but they went about it through disobedience. And that's, that's the irony here, is you can't get it through disobedience. You get that through following Christ, through obeying him, following him wholeheartedly. The, the scriptures even says, says here that, um, yeah, hang on a minute, I'll get it. Well, it says, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. You see, we don't get to be like God by disobeying. We get to be like God by following, by obeying, by being disciples of Christ. We really are the others that Jesus gave himself up for. So the greatest example of humility is seen in Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And the word is poured out. You can picture a a pitcher just being poured out, the water being poured out of that pitcher. That doesn't mean he stopped being God because if he had stopped being God, he could never have performed the miracles he performed when he was on earth, could never have forgiven sins. He could not have raised Lazarus from the dead or conquered death itself. but he gave up his right 
to certain godly attributes. For instance, when Jesus was on earth, he wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't everywhere at one time. When Jesus was on earth, he didn't avail himself to all knowledge. And we know this because when the disciples said, tell us, when will you come back? When, when is the end of the age? And he said, not even the Son of Man knows. Jesus didn't avail himself of, of the power that he had when, he, when he, he, he was tempted in the garden. And when Peter rose up to fight the guards that came against him, and Jesus said, don't you know, I could call a legion of angels to come and save me, but I'm not going to. He didn't avail himself of his power. Instead, Jesus emptied himself. Some of your versions will say, Jesus made himself of no account. No account. He is the greatest example of humility. Think about this. Revelation says about Jesus that he is worthy of all power, of all riches, of all wisdom, of all might, of all honor, of all glory, and all blessing. And yet he made himself worthless in comparison. Can you picture that? How worthy he is. And he became worthless in comparison. Again, God gave up his rights and his privileges in order to become human. He is certainly the greatest example of regarding others as more important than himself. God took on human flesh. The infinite took on finite. Eternal put on, put on mortality. Self-existent and self-dependent became dependent. The all-powerful became vulnerable and the sinless one took on sin. Not his own sin, because he never sinned. You understand that Jesus never sinned, and he never sinned in his humanness, right? It wouldn't be fair to say Jesus never sinned because he was God, right? Because we know God doesn't sin. But Jesus was fully human, and yet he was tempted in every way, just as we are, but in his humanness, he never sinned. He never gave in to temptation. John MacArthur puts it beautifully. He says, in light of the profound reality of Jesus' full and uncompromised deity, his incarnation was the most profound possible humiliation. For him to change in any way or to any degree required descent. By definition, to forsake perfection requires taking on some form of imperfection, yet without forsaking or in any way diminishing his perfect deity or his absolute holiness in a way that is far beyond human comprehension. The creator took on the form of the created. Jesus is the greatest example. The greatest example of humility is seen in Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant. So not only did, did God himself become human, become a man, but he took the lowest place of humanity, a slave the lowest place in society. Now think about a slave. A slave has no personal rights. 
He is only living to advance the personal rights of his owner. A slave is there to serve the needs of others. And a slave has been deprived of his own basic needs in order to promote the needs of somebody else. A slave owns nothing. In fact, he himself or she herself is owned. That's what a slave is. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said this himself in the Gospel of Mark when he said he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the greatest example of humility is seen in Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. The words are so carefully chosen by the Holy Spirit here. It says, in the likeness of man, the likeness of human flesh, a different word than in the form of. See, the form has a more permanent sense to it in the Greek. He is permanently God. But here, this one who was permanently God at a point in time took on flesh. He became something he had not been, something he was not. He covered his godliness with flesh. He took on humanity. Jesus was a genuine man. He was exactly like you and me. He had a body, a soul, a spirit. He grew, he developed, he went through the stages of life just like we did. He was 100% human. He was so 100% human that many people missed his godliness, missed that he was God. His own family didn't see that he was God until the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. So he was found in the appearance of man, being made in the likeness of men. And the book of Romans says it more specifically that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful man. He had no sin himself, no sin at all, but yet he chose to live beneath the suffering umbrella of sin. He chose to live in the results of the curse of sin. So as a, as a result of that, Jesus had friends and he had enemies. He had physical strength, but he also had physical limit, limitations. He enjoyed beautiful things like, like sunshine or a cold glass of water or, or somebody told me, I should say, or a piece of furniture because he was a carpenter. He enjoyed those beautiful things and yet he suffered pain. He helped the suffering people and yet he himself suffered. And although he was not a man from the beginning, he put on complete humanity, fully God and fully man, from conception to death. He went through the entire human experience. The greatest example of humility is seen in Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Obe obedient to the point of death. 
He obeyed his father in the face of the greatest loss he could possibly face. You understand that in his flesh, Jesus could have decided to not obey. In his humanity, he could have said, I'm I'm not going to do it. I'm going to grasp at my godliness, and I'm going to hang on to that, and I'm not going to do anything for these wretches. They don't deserve it. I'm not going to give myself up. But he didn't do that. He chose obedience. Satan chose disobedience. Adam chose disobedience. None of us could ever choose the obedience to the point of death like Christ did. One commentator says, only God can choose to obey or disobey death. For the rest of us, it's our obligation. He alone can choose death. So so understand this. For him to have conquered death, he actually had to become mortal and then go through death. In order to do that, he had to be a man, fully human. But to actually have the choice to do it, He had to be God because no person who is only man has a choice. We will all face death. That's just a part of our mortality. So think about what Jesus did. He was in the highest position that could ever exist in all of creation. And he lowered himself and became a man. He not only became a man, he became the lowest form of a man in our society, a slave. He not only became a slave, he became a slave that had to die. He not only became a man who was a slave that had to die, but he chose to die on a cross, which is the most humiliating death there is. Jewish law said that a man who is hanged becomes a curse in the land. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He became a curse. He went from the highest possible position to the lowest position, a curse. And why did he do it? For you. For me. So that you and I could be lifted out of our cursed position. You see, sin had caused the curse in us. We were living under that curse. Sin in us was a condemnation, a desecration. But because Jesus had the attitude to not grasp onto his deity, but to use it for our benefit instead, he gave it all up and became the lowest of lows. And he became so low that there is none of us here that is lower, too low for Jesus. None of us are out of his reach. He became the lowest of lows. Says in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Romans says it this way, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God sent his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. So Jesus doesn't condemn us anymore. Instead, he condemns the sin in sinful man. Now that becomes useless and can no longer condemn us. Sin has lost its power. And now the righteousness the righteous requirements of the law are now fully met in us. So Christ left all that he had and became the very lowest so that you and I could be lifted up. 
Commentator Lewis said it this way. He said, the, sons, the son of God became man so that man might become sons of God. And that's just it. When we repent, when we, when we confess our sins, when we receive by faith this humiliation of Jesus on the cross in our place, we are then raised up to become like him, like God. Listen to how the passage ends. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, of those who are on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So God rejoiced over the the death on the cross obedience that Jesus, his son, did. And because God rejoiced over his beautiful and complete humiliation, he exalted him to the highest position, back up to where he was, that he is higher than all. He is at the right hand of God and the authority over all of creation. And a time is coming when Every living creature will bow before Jesus and willingly or unwillingly, they will acknowledge him as Lord. That doesn't mean they will all be saved. What it does mean is that they will have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his name, Jesus, which means God saves, is the name above every name. There is no other name that will be exalted to that place Pastor Paul Reese says it better than I could ever say it. This is just so beautiful. In all this wide universe, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God, in sheer grace, descended to this errant planet. Never would he have done it if he were the kind of deity who looks only to his own interests and closes his eyes to the interests of others. You must remember that through your union with him in living redemptive experience, this principle and passion by which he was moved must become the principle and passion by which you are moved. And that's the whole point of the passage. He started out by saying, have the same attitude as that of Christ. And then he went into all of the humiliation of Christ So if God, almighty, all-powerful, worthy of all honor and glory, can become the very lowest thing we can possibly think of, then how hard is it for me to go from here to here for you and for you to do here to here for somebody else? Jesus is our example the greatest example of all humility. And he says it's actually possible for us to have that same attitude. How on earth can we have that attitude? Well, because he's put the Holy Spirit in us. I could never do it without without the Lord living in me. But Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And he's working on you day after day to help you come from here, well, from here to here, right? And what's the benefit of that? 
Well, he started out the passage. We're working our way backwards through the passage. Look at all the benefits. The, the love, the compassion, the affection, the consoling love of Christ, the encouragement in the spirit. All of the attitude of Christ leads to unity in our church. So it's so appropriate this morning that we come to the Lord's Supper. What a beautiful time, what a beautiful message from the word to come and celebrate together the sacrifice of Christ. The very picture of him giving up his life in the bread and giving up his blood in the cup. But as we do this, we need to take this very seriously because the the Bible says we need to spend time evaluating our hearts and our relationships with one another and our relationship with Christ. So if you can ask yourself this question first, have I received Christ's great work of humiliation as payment for my sin? Am I in good standing with this one to whom all creation will bow and acknowledge as Lord of the universe? If you can answer yes to that, then come and participate in communion. If you can't answer that, then now's the time to give your heart to Christ or just let this pass by you. But I'm going to ask you to ask, you to ask yourself some other questions. Are there relationships that I am involved in where I am pressing my own needs and my own rights and not regarding the other person as more important? If there are, then either make that right this morning or let this pass before you. Am I involved in situations where I am insisting upon my own interests being met rather than looking to meet others' interests. If you are in that situation, then make it right this morning or let the elements pass by you. And finally, are people looking at me and saying, that's how Jesus must have acted? If they are looking at you and saying, that's how Jesus must have acted when he did this, then joyfully partake of these things. If there are people that you need to resolve with, then come to the Lord this morning before the bread and cup are distributed. We're gonna take a little time right now to quietly pray and evaluate ourselves. If there are people that you need to resolve with, confess it to the Lord and make determination that when you're done here, you're gonna go and resolve. You're gonna fix that relationship. You're gonna do whatever you can to make that relationship better. And if you're not willing to do that, then let this pass. So let's take some time to pray. And distribute the bread, Um, you keep it, and we'll, we'll take it together in unity. Go right ahead, man. We'll take it together in unity but continue to pray, continue to speak to the Lord about these things in your heart. It's Old Testament. This bread is called the bread of affliction because Christ was afflicted. 
He was afflicted for your sins and my sins. And in taking on that affliction, he took on the wrath of God so that you and I would no longer have to face that. If you're a believer and you're participating in this right now, you are celebrating freedom, freedom from the wrath of God. Let's eat and partake together. As you're holding the cup now, let's sing together, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's sing it. When Jesus was having the last supper with his disciples, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. You see, with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we now have a new agreement with God that our sins are forgiven. And so when we drink this, we drink this with joy because our sins no longer condemn us. In fact, sin itself has been condemned and we stand in the righteousness of Christ. So let's drink together to the forgiveness of sins. Pray with me. Oh Lord, how can we thank you? There are no words, truly no words, Father, that can express the gratitude that you deserve. And actually there, there is not enough deep feeling in, in each of us to express the gratitude that you deserve for what you have done, for, for leaving your throne, taking on flesh so that you could bring us to yourself. Lord, oh, help us. Help us to apply this teaching today. May your word be rich in us. Lord, remind us through this week about the attitude that you had, that you gave yourself up. You poured yourself out. You took on flesh. You took on the form of a slave. You died and died on the cross so that you could reach the lowest of us and bring us up that we may become like God in the best way. Oh Lord, help us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, would you stand with me? And I, I would like to, as our benediction, just speak this passage over you. So please stand. As you go, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of, what is the name? Jesus. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.